Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, we have Massimo Piliucci, uh, Return of Massimo. He's an author, blogger, podcaster, as well as the KD Irani Prof- Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. His academic work is in evolutionary bi- biology, philosophy of science, the nature of pseudoscience, and practical philosophy. He's been published in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and Salon, among others. His books include How to Be a Stoic, Using Ancient Philosophy to Live a Modern Life, and Nonsense on Stilts, How to Tell Science from Bunk. And his newest book, coming out on September 27th, is called The Quest for Character, What the Story of Socrates and Alcibiades Teaches Us About Our Search for Good Leaders. Welcome, Massimo. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be back. Absolutely. And then so to start with a quote from Massimo's book, just because we are acquainted with ourselves, because we have access to our inner thoughts and have lived with ourselves all of our lives, we think we have a pretty good working knowledge of who we are. But such working knowledge is rather superficial. If we truly if we truly wish to know ourselves, we need to engage in critical self-reflection, ideally aided by friends or others who want to help and are not shy about pointing out our rationalizations and excuses. We all need our inner Socrates, as well as our outer ones, if we can find them. So I love that. And the thing that I was thinking about essentially was like this. Socrates was essentially like the first therapist. So if we think about what psychotherapy is today, a lot of what it is is character work, not so much of like trying to kind of develop or make the other person into another person or trying to make them into our vision of what we want the other person to be. But it's mostly like sort of coming up with a sense of morality that both the therapist and the client or patient, whatever you want to call them, agree to. So what I really love about your book is that you focus on morality in a way that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. So if you think about what we hear about on the far left and the far right, on the far left, we kind of have this, uh, it's sort of like, it's a post-truth world where we think of truth as a construct. And we essentially see the world as a sort of in terms of power dynamics. And we think of truth as being constructed by those in power for the most part. I mean, but essentially the idea is that truth is based on a, co- or is a social construct. And then obviously, you know, on the far right, it's pretty nonsensical. And you have this idea of alternative facts, which is just like, it's not even worth considering. So I love that your book actually takes a more of an objective view of morality. And when we start, when we're starting to think about Socrates, we're essentially thinking of what does it mean to be a good person sort of objectively more so right you know in sort of like what is it that it means to the community and what does it do for the rest of us even though we're not talking about the divine or anything like that so can you tell talk to us about why socrates is still important and obviously why morality in some ways can still and should be saved from these like kind of extreme views of what it's been yeah that's that's absolutely uh, you're absolutely right i mean uh, on on all the points so first of all we tend to think of morality today as along along two lines mostly. One, there is no such effect. Uh, that's the relativist position, right? So there are no moral truths at all. Uh, your opinion, you know, vanilla, choc- chocolate, genocide, no genocide. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. It's uh, it's it's a question of preferences. It's where there is no truth behind it that's clearly ridiculous and i think that nobody actually believes that mm-hmm. and the proof of the matter even though people even the, including the people that actually claim that they believe that because even moral relativists then go on and and you know denounce other people for doing the wrong thing or for or for having uh you know being the subject of injustice and stuff like that it's like well on what basis are you doing that it's like you know your opinion my opinion so mm-hmm. what are you doing here so moral relativism is certainly a position out there, but it's essentially in- incoherent. It, it, it's really difficult for me to, to take it seriously. The opposite extreme is what has been going on for a long time, and that is moral realism. A moral realist would say that, of course, there are there's such a thing as moral truths, and typically those moral truths come from one of two sources, either God, think Ten Commandments, or reason think Kant's categorical imperative, right? So uh, the problem is I don't believe in gods, and so that's out. Um, and in fact, an increasing number of people don't seem to take the, the notion of God seriously, so mm-hmm. that's out. In fact, even if you do believe in, let me open up a little parenthesis here. Even if you do believe in God, uh, there is very good reasons to reject the notion that gods are the source of morality. And that uh, good reason goes back to a platonic dialogue called the Eutyphro which was written 2,400 years ago and features Socrates uh, talking to this guy, Eutyphro, about the nature of moral reasoning. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you know, Eutyphro keeps saying, oh, of 
course, morality comes from the gods. Where else, etc. And at some point, God, uh, sorry, Socrates <laughs> says, uh, "Well, okay, so let me let me get this straight. Do you think that the gods declare that something is wrong, let's say genocide, because that's just the way they decided it, or do you think that they say that it is wrong because it is wrong?" And Utifra doesn't really understand the difference initially, so he goes for either way. So he goes first one way and says, well, I don't know. Whatever the gods say goes. And Socrates points out that that's relativism. Uh, that is a question of might makes right. You then, Therefore, you're going to do what God says just because he's very powerful, but not because there is any good reason. If God decides that genocide is okay, then you know you'd be fine with it. So then Eutyphus says, no, 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 that's not, that's not a good idea. Then it must be the other one. And Socrates says, well, if you go the other way, then what you're saying is that there is a source of morality that is outside of God, because the gods do what is moral, not what they decide arbitrarily is moral, but what is moral, in which case that means there is an, a source of morality external to the gods. So the, the bottom line of the Eutyphus dilemma is that even if you believe in God, that's not going to be your source for morality because you still have to answer why is it that God decides that one thing is moral and the other one is not. So that's out. Now, the other alternative for a moral realist like Kant, let's say, mm -hmm. is to say, look, it's morality is the result of reason. We apprehend moral truths by reasoning, just in a, in a similar way to how we apprehend mathematical truths or logical truths. Right. So if the three of us were to, to discuss the Pythagorean theorem, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, let's say that one of you would say at some point after the discussion, you know, we go through the proof and all that. And uh, and, and then at the end of it, one of you says, um, no, I don't believe in the Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> well, then I would have to say you just didn't understand it. You didn't get it. It's it's there's not, not, it's not a question of belief or no belief. It's there. It, if, right. if you don't understand the proof, that's fine. But it is there. Same with logical truths right so if you start using logic in terms of you know you, you build an argument based on premises and and derive the logically entailed conclusions that's it you know if you understand logic you will do it uh, and everybody will do it the same it's not like there's going to be a matter of disagreement there problem is that doesn't seem to work with morality because there's a lot of disagreement about what is or what is not moral and it doesn't seem to be the equivalent of the, the logical or mathematical equivalent of a moral truth there's there's just like no no way in which we can actually lay down the arguments in this in the same way in which a mathematician would do it so i find moral realism indefensible because it invokes a typological truth of which we do not have any evidence that it actually exists. Fine. So now what? Now we're left with... Wait, wait, Maso, is it okay yeah. if I set you up here? Of course. So, so right. In philosophy, there's the famous is and, ought, is and ought gap, where the idea is just because we get facts of the world or facts of the universe, it doesn't mean that they actually tell us what we need to do, right? So right. it doesn't tell us anything about ethics or morality. So what would Socrates in this case say? So Socrates would say, hold on a second, there is a third option. Mm. In fact, it's kind of funny that you mentioned the is art gap because I just literally finished half an hour ago writing a new essay on that that's going to be out tomorrow. Very so, nice. <laughs> so what, look at, what, a co what a coincidence. Okay, so Socrates would say, hold on a second. Socrates, and in fact, the Greco-Romans in general, not just Socrates, would say, wait a minute, there's a third option. And the third option is what modern philosophers refer to as uh, naturalistic ethics. Mm -hmm. So modern philosophers like Philippa Foote, for instance, uh, or Alasdair MacIntyre and uh, um, uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, there is a number of them, usually most of them uh, British for some reason that I don't understand. But what is natural, ethical naturalism? Well, the notion here is that, look, let's take a step back. What is ethics? What is it that we're talking about here? What is a? I'm using the words ethics and morality uh, interchangeably. By the way, I'm I'm using the same term, you know, as a, as if they were synonyms. Why? Because the word ethics comes from the Greek ethos, mm -hmm. which Cicero, the arguably the first Roman philosopher, translated in Latin as moralis, from which we get morality. Right now, both ethos and moralis have a meaning that has to do with character and with living together with other people. Mm -hmm. 
So in other words, ethics really is the way in which we figure out how to live with other people without killing each other. Yeah. Right. The way we actually cooperate and, and, and are more or less fair to other people. Now, an ethical naturalist would say, not only we have to cooperate with other people because we are a social species, our survival and, and our flourishing depend on being fair to other people, cooperating with other people, etc. But in fact, nature itself has built into us instincts of cooperation, prosociality, fairness, and stuff like that. Why? Because we're social primates. And we can actually show, uh, you know, and comparative uh, primatologists like Franz Deval, for instance, mm -hmm. have shown uh, pretty convincingly that it's not like human beings are the only ones to act ethically. There are a lot of other primate species, social species, that uh, exhibit the same kind of behavior, the kind of behavior that if you were looking at it and we were observing human beings, you would say, oh, that guy is acting fairly or uh, with justice, et cetera, et cetera. The difference, of course, between human beings and other social primates is that as far as we know, other social primates don't actually think outright uh, about this kind of stuff. They just do it instinctively. We have both the instincts, which we have inherited from our primate ancestors, and we have the ability to think about it, to expand what the instinct um, implies and to apply it to situations that are far more complex, more modern, and right. for which natural selection didn't really prepare us. Right? Wait, so, so can I ask a question? Yeah. Is, it, is it then that, are we thinking about the Humean idea where it's sort of like, um, where reason is in the service of emotions or affect, where the idea is like we have this innate, innate drive to do good or to be pro-social, and essentially reason is just a way to reach those goals? Yeah, kind of the latter. So I think that in, reason is instrumental. Right. Reason is about reaching certain goals, and right. the goals are set by the kind of species we are. Right. Right. So, so, so the basic idea is: look, if I, if you guys invited me over for dinner and I brought a present, let's say a cactus, because I'm the kind of guy that brings cacti uh, to people when they invite him for dinner. Now, mm -hmm. now you're responsible for the for the flourishing and survival of the cactus, right? And what do you need to do? You need to know something about the nature of cacti. Mm -hmm. right. Not only that they're plants, but that they're a particular type of plant, a desert plant. Because if you start saying, well, it's a plant, it, it needs water, and you start giving it water continuously, you will kill the cactus. Because you will not realize that actually cactus nature is not the generic plant nature is specific, right? It needs a lot of light and not that much water. Well, mm -hmm. human beings are not cacti. They were a little bit more complicated, but not that much. And the same mm -hmm. reasoning applies. That is... If the question is, how do we build a society that allows people, human beings, to not only survive, but also flourish, that's the question that ethics is, is, uh, is asking and is trying, is trying to solve. And there are different ways of doing so. Of course, there are different answers to the question of, you know, how do we build a society, a flourishing society? But there are also a lot of bad answers. Right. right? So, for instance, if you were to build a society where random murder were condoned or mm -hmm. where thievery were, were was was the norm or where lying uh in you know all, all over the place was was acceptable standard well that society will unravel very quickly mm -hmm. and and so the idea is that uh ethics in this sense is neither a, a matter of opinion yours mine etc nor a matter of absolute universal cosmic truths or anything like that it's a matter yeah. of of local troops because we human beings are a particular species of social primate that works in a particular way that has certain needs and wants and fears and etc cetera, etc cetera, then we want to make sure that people behave in certain ways and don't behave in other ways and we call those ways that we want ethical or moral and the ways that we don't want unethical and immoral 
Right. So it would sort of be like, like if I wanted to, if let's say Alan and I were, you know, obviously we're doing a podcast. So I wanted to make sure that Alan had the best experience possible. And I would say if it's like, if let's say if it's an evolutionary drive, what we would think is, well, you know, I have this innate desire for my friends, for my family to live well and to flourish. And we would say that we would use ethics or we would use kind of reason to figure out how to manifest that because of, again, of this innate drive to pro-sociality. Would that be something like that? Yeah, exactly. Now yeah. you talk about the, the is art gap. Now, we have already, you know, bridged that gap at this point, because what mm -hmm. we're saying is that what we ought to do is based on facts about human nature. Mm -hmm. Now, that said, it's not straightforwardly based on facts. In other words, there isn't going to be just a, a, a science of, of ethics where somebody observes human behavior and says, therefore, you do this. That's mm -hmm. the mistake that my friend Michael Schirmer made, made a few years ago when he wrote a book on the moral arc mm -hmm. and the mistake that my non-friend, uh, you know, uh, Sam Harris uh, <laughs> made even earlier when he wrote the, the, the moral landscape. So mm -hmm. the problem with those authors is that they emphasize too much the science part, the, the is part, the factual part, but apparently without realizing that facts as philosophers often say, underdetermine values and actions that is there is always the same facts are compatible with a number of different courses of action mm -hmm. and and at that point you have to start reasoning about it you have to start thinking about it in other words you need to do philosophy right so what i'm suggesting is you do that ethics is an empirically based type of philosophizing and i'm not the one that came up with it of course and only i mentioned modern ethical naturalists like philippa foot but if you go all the way, way back to the Greco-Romans, that's what Socrates, the Stoics, the Epicureans, and so on and so forth were doing. The, the Stoic model was live according to nature. Right. Right. And what they meant by it is like li live by taking seriously the fact that you are a social primate capable of reason with certain needs and certain wants. And from there, you derive what it means to act virtuously, to act uh, properly. Right. Can virtue actually be taught to people or is it something that is innate to us? Uh, good. Now we're talking about my book. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the first chapter of the book opens, you know, the book opens up with precisely that question, which has been asked for more than 2000 years. And the way I present it there is by way of what Socrates says about it, because Socrates changed his mind famously about, about this thing, which is kind of interesting. So what happens there? is that um, initially, in uh, Socrates thinks, no, virtue cannot be taught. And he, he says this in the Meno, which is a, a platonic dialogue. Mm -hmm. And he arrives at that conclusion because he says, look, uh, if, if people could be teaching, you know, if, if, if uh, could be taught virtue, then you would see a lot of teachers. Mm -hmm. And I don't see any teachers of virtue, do you? <laughs> and so he says, no, therefore, it must be that, they, that it can't be taught. However, in another Platonic dialogue, the Protagoras, he mm. changes his mind. He starts out the dialogue with the same position. He says, no, 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 it can't be, can't be done. And then by the end of it, he says, man, I think actually that's it's true. It can be done. And surprisingly, the person who changes Socrates' mind is Protagoras, who is a sophist. You know, typically mm -hmm. the sophists were the arch enemies of, of uh you know, Socrates. And so it's mm -hmm. to see Socrates, to see an entire dialogue where it, it is a sophist that actually changes Socrates' mind. It's kind of interesting. Now, what does Protagoras says? Protagoras says things like, look, virtue is like, it's a technique. It's like painting or like sculpting or like uh, learning a musical instrument. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you learn a musical instrument? You need three things. You, you need a little bit of theory, right? Mm -hmm. if, uh, it helps if you know a little bit about musical theory, at least the notations, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Number one. Number two, you need a good teacher. Why? You could you could learn on your own, mm -hmm. uh, but with a teacher is better because the teacher is going to correct you when you're trying when you're doing something that is actually not not correct, not not right, right? That corrects your form. It, it gives you hints and and suggestions, etc. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing is practice, 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 practice. 
right? <laughs> so in fact, it's 95% practice and then the rest is theory and, and teacher. And Protagoras says the same thing goes for, for virtue. Virtue is a skill. What is virtue after all? Virtue is, the, the word in Greek is arete, which means excellence, mm -hmm. right? So to be virtuous means to be an excellent human being. What, what the hell is an excellent human being? Well, because of what we said earlier about humanity being a species of you know, social primates characterized with, by, by high degrees of intelligence, etc., an excellent human being is one who reasons well mm -hmm. and who acts well in a society. Because those are the two fundamental aspects of human nature. We're social and we're really smart. Right. So an excellent human being, a virtuous human being, is one who reasons well. That's why the Stoics insisted that you need to study logic. And who acts well in, in the world. Right? Now, how do you learn to act well in the world and to reason well? Again, mm -hmm. you need to do a little bit of theory, um, you know, uh, logic, basic principles of ethics. You, you need a good teacher, somebody like Socrates, and you need a lot of practice. You just mm -hmm. need to, day after day, pay attention to what you're doing and engage in, uh, in exercises of self-improvement. Yeah, I love that. And so taking it into psychotherapy, and obviously you mentioned CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy in your book. What I really love about that is that sort of there's been this injunction of knowing thyself since obviously ancient times. But what's so interesting is that oftentimes, especially just like with behavioral theory and how we think about like who we are, there's this very sort of shallow understanding of us as human beings that we kind of just go about in the world focusing on our desires and our drives, but understandingly or not understandingly so, because like there's this underlying set of values that each of us has. And it's either on the one hand, we kind of just don't think about them or we don't think about living up to them. Or on the one other hand, we sort of deceive ourselves and we think that we're living up to them. So right. what I really love is that you actually focus on Christian Miller's work, who's been on our podcast several times. And we talk about values and obviously cultivating values and how that happens. So can you tell us a little bit about how that, how you, first of all, how you came to that work and how it applies to Socratic thought? Yeah. So there's, there's a larger literature, both in philosophy and in psychology about character, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, Kristen's book is, is one of the best that has, that has come up in, in recent years at a accessible at a general public. Yeah. And the title, as you know, is the, 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 the character gap. What is that gap? The gap is, uh, as you just said, most of us think that we're better than we actually are. There, yeah. there is a gap there. Right? Uh, now, not just in terms of morality. Uh, most of us, for instance, think that we are better drivers than we are, right? We are, we're all above average drivers. Well, no, it can't. You can't be. It cannot be the the case that everybody's above average, kind of by definition of average. <laughs> so, in the case of morality, we most of us with potentially few exceptions, but most of us want to be good people. Nobody wants to be described by others or by himself as, you know, a bad person. Right. Right. So, which, which is great. It's the result. It's probably the result, as I said, of these instinct that natural selection built into us of, you know, we feel good when we do things for other people with other people, etc. And there's plenty of, you know, this is not just a Pollyannish view of humanity. Uh, there's plenty of solid empirical evidence from psychology that that is, in fact, the case, despite the fact that under certain circumstances, we can do all sorts of really, really shitty things uh, mm -hmm. to each other, as we all know. But broadly speaking, most people, most of the times, like to be nice to other people. Right. The, the problem is that we are not as good at it as we might be. And what the evidence that Christian and others uh, have put together shows is that there are certain ways of improving that work and other ways that don't work. And interestingly to me, the fact is the things that do work are pretty much the same kinds of things that the Greco-Romans insisted on. Right. So one thing that does work, for instance, is adapt adopting role models. Mm -hmm. Right. So, which is what the Greco-Romans went around saying you should do. Uh, uh, the Stoics picked people like Cato the Younger, the archenemy of Julius Caesar, or Epictetus, the, the early second century slave turned teacher, or Socrates himself. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, why would you want to pick a role model? Because a Role model is essentially somebody that you keep in mind, and every time you do something or or you you're asking yourself, should I do this? The 
the thought goes immediately to that person and says, well, what do, what would that person say? Right. Mm-hmm. Now, religious people do that. If you go into the United States, in the south of the United States, you'll, saw, you'll see a lot of people with bracelets that says WWJD, what would Jesus do? Right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's picking a role model. Uh, and not only that, it's it's a very physical reminder, direct reminder every day, right? Mm-hmm. That that's what you want to do. Now, of course, you are not Jesus, but you aspire to be behaving in that way, behaving mm-hmm. as close as possible. The Stoics said the same thing. Epictetus, at one point in the discourses, has, uh, you know, I am not a Socrates yet, but I would like to die as somebody who is trying to be a Socrates. Mm-hmm. Now, the evidence from modern, modern moral psychology is that, in fact, this thing works. Uh, when people are reminded or they are, they, are, they are told to remind themselves of a role model, they tend to act better, to, to right. do, you know, to behave in a better fashion. And role model, by the way, doesn't have to be Jesus, you know, a god or uh, or a Socrates. It can be your grandmother. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what would grandma do under these conditions? Ah, okay, then she wouldn't do this. So that's one thing that works: uh, the, the adopting role models. The second thing that works is to purposely seek out situations that. Uh, you might feel uncomfortable with initially, but but they're going to improve um, whatever aspect of your character you want to work on. For instance, let's say that you you realize that you know I could be more generous. Some uh, generosity is a good thing, and I don't really practice it that much. Okay, great. Well, one simple way to practice generosity is to make a point when you go out the house in the morning to put some change in your pockets and then give it to the first homeless person that you see. Mm-hmm. No questions asked. You just do and do it. Now, initially, this will feel uncomfortable. Initially, you might even ask yourself, why am I doing this? But then the more you do it, the more it becomes a habit. And Aristotle uh, was one of the first to uh, state the, the what is now a, an accepted fact in modern cognitive behavioral therapy, which is you change your behavior you change your habits by making a habit of doing something, right? By doing stuff. Initially, you do it even though you don't necessarily feel like doing it. You know, the famous faking until you make yeah. it mm-hmm. right? sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it's not really faking it because you're doing it on purpose. This, this sure. is a, you know, you're, you're doing it on, uh, because you thought about it and you want to do it. But nevertheless, initially, you don't necessarily feel like doing it. Mm-hmm. But eventually, mm-hmm. later on, that becomes sort of automatic. So that's another way. To do it, you, you expose yourself to situations that are uh, that go in the direction where you want to go. And then the third thing that, and final thing that works, is something that I think Christian calls the getting the word out of yourself, mm-hmm. uh, and the Greco-Romans refer to as philosophical diary. So you analyze uh, regularly, consistently on a daily basis if possible or at least several times a week you take a few minutes in your day and analyze your behavior and you ask yourself what seneca asked himself what did i do right what did i do wrong what could i do better Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the reason for that is not so that you can indulge in sort of regret and say oh i should have done this i should have done that. that's useless The, the past is gone it's outside of your control you can't change it anyway but what you do want to do is to pay attention to your experiences and focus on the things you did wrong because you want to understand why you did that you also focus on the things you did right because you want to learn you want to move more in that direction in away from the bad stuff and toward the positive the good stuff mm-hmm. and then you ask yourself what could i do better because you know, we, we tend to think of, I don't know, some of some of us at least think that that we have a really interesting and varied life. But in fact, we tend to do the same things over and over. Right? Mm-hmm. We, we get up in the morning, we go to work, uh, we see the same people, then we come back home and we see our partner, our children, whatever it is. And then during the weekend, we go out with friends. It's, it's And then the week starts over and you do the same thing over and over. Mm-hmm. Now, right. yeah. with variations, but, you know, pretty much. What that means is that very similar situations will occur repeatedly and so if today let's say you reacted with anger to what a co-worker was doing or or saying you know that that person is going to do it again it's just not mm-hmm. like you know, it's not like oh well that was a once in a in a while and that's it no it's going to happen again 
And if you think that reacting with anger was not really the best thing that you could have done today, then then think about what you did and then prepare mentally yourself for the next time that this happens. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah, it stands to reason, right? I mean, if you keep doing the same thing, you'll end up getting the same or similar results. But as soon as you change one X variable or Y variable, whatever, Right. automatically changes however the, your axes are <laughs> yeah of course and then it, it changes the result no matter what especially if somebody who's experiencing the same day essentially every day and they want to change something about themselves of course if, if you find even one thing to change even one microscopic thing your life will alter some percentage right i was gonna ask is that the one that's the, i actually thought that that was the one that was gonna stand out for you was it in terms of the tools yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I role, role models is actually oh, really? the, the thing that uh, I appreciate the most because, yeah, when you when you copy someone else's uh, behaviors or their whatever led them to success, then arguably, if you were able to imitate that as best as you can, you may get the same or similar similar results. Right. Right. So, yeah. It's, yeah. So, so for me, the role models was the one that stood out the most, just because I feel like, so just going to go into a little bit of my background of a little bit of my history. So uh, not proud of this. I was once upon a time, not only a libertarian, but I was also a conspiracy theorist many moons ago. Uh, so wow. I went, yeah, man, it was, it was so bad. I was like <laughs> hardcore, like deep into Ron Paul and just like that whole movement before QAnon, thank God. Uh, so yeah, I had a really great college mentor, Dr. Timothy Stroop, who was a college, who was a philosophy professor at John Jay college. Uh, and and then so before Tim retired, for whatever reason, Tim actually ended up taking me under his wing. I still don't really know why. For whatever reason, he saw something in me. And so he and I used to go back and forth. We'd argue all the time. And even I think years after I ended his class, I would come back to speak to his like uh, present students, even though I was a past student. And we would always kind of bicker and we would joke about how like he and I disagree on pretty much everything, which is hilarious because like as the years went by, uh, he would like send me these different books and he would tell me like, look, man, he's like, you don't have to agree with any of this. But if you're really going to consider yourself as an intelligent being, or if you're going to think of yourself as anybody that's worth of the title of skeptic, which is, a, you know, truth seekers are like, oh, we're skeptics, you know, we know, right? So he's like, if you're going to be worthy of that title, he's like, you need to know what the other side is arguing, not like caricatures of that or bastardizations. So as I started reading some of the books that he sent me, one one that really like stands out to me was this book called The Self-Made Myth about how kind of self-made millionaires don't really exist. And the idea is there's a lot of, yeah. So for him, he started sending me these books and I'm thinking as I'm reading them, I just want to put together these arguments. And little by little, I was like, holy shit, man, I've been like wrong about everything this whole time. And so slowly as he and I started having more and more conversations about why he was right, as opposed to me just trying to like defeat him and be an aggressor, he was like, dude, like I'm trying to help you. He's like, the reason why I'm sending you this stuff is because I believe in you and I don't think that you need to be stuck in this trap. And you know, libertarianism, conspiracy theorism, you know, whatever, it's all a trap. So when he's when he's trying to tell me that, I'm starting to see that here's this person who has a role model is legitimately trying to help me. Mm -hmm. And so why I love this idea of role models is that you often see this, especially in the Socratic dialogues, where maybe in some of the less harsh ones, but you genuinely feel like Socrates is somebody who's trying to help people. He, even though, yes, he's annoying and obviously he's challenging conventions yeah. and he's sort of an iconoclast, but the idea is he's doing it for the betterment of society. And I felt like if there was anybody that I ever knew that represented Socrates, it was Tim. And honestly, he a little bit kind of resembled him too, just in the kind of wisdom, well, maybe more so Aristotle. But the person that he was, was again, going back to that idea of Socrates is that he, and it's not just for me, it's for all of his students. You could genuinely tell that he cared about helping you grow. And what I love so much, and this is what I get from Socrates too, especially in the book, is that the level of patience required to not only change beliefs, but to help the person see that, hey, you're in this for them. You're in this to help them become a better person because it serves them more than anybody else. That's exactly right. Now, another uh, uh, Variation on the role model, uh, which is another thing that both the Greco-Romans suggested and for which there is pretty good evidence from modern social science, is friendship. <laughs> so if you pick a good friend or a good group of friends, then you will learn and they will learn from you, of course. Uh, there is research actually that shows that uh, friends' networks are incredibly uh, effective at changing people's behaviors. Uh, let's say, for instance, that let's say you smoke and then you decide to stop smoking. There's a close to 50% chance that your closest friends will also stop smoking. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And about 20 to 25% chances that their friends will, will stop it just because you did. Mm 
Wow. So talk about having an influence, right, on, on other people. And so friendships are important. Uh, but of course, you have to be careful in picking your friends, right? Uh, Epictetus says, um, you know, stay away from people who are not philosophers, meaning not academics like me, but people who don't practice philosophy, right? Who don't live philosophically, because they'll drag you down. And every time that I mentioned that passage somebody says oh that that's impossibly uh you know obnoxious and and elitist etc i said well isn't that what your mother told you when you were a kid <laughs> stay away from bad influences mm -hmm. and, and try to look for good people it's like yeah that's that's exactly what Peter is saying he's not he's not saying anything that is particularly hard to to imagine or follow for that matter right Right. And, you know, this may, that's making me think in terms of like politics. We had, uh, you know, when Trump was president, there was this idea where, uh, OK, I'm not going to kind of spoil it, but I think everybody already knows where this is going. Uh, this It was this idea that, you know, he's going to surround himself with at least some good people and somebody like Ivanka would probably help kind of rein him in. And the right. idea is that, like, you know, with enough sort of tutoring, maybe he can do some good things and obviously withhold, you know, prevent himself from doing some bad things. Mm -hmm. So. I'm going to ask you kind of a difficult question, and maybe it's not that black and white, but I am curious as to what you think. So do you think it's better to tr try your best to turn politicians into, you know, philosopher kings? Or is it better to obviously have sort of philosopher kings and eh, kind of help them become politicians? Yeah, well, my book clearly argues for the latter. Uh, mm -hmm. So there are there are two uh, crucial chapters in the book, one that has to do with examples of philosophers trying to teach politicians. And the other one that has to do with philosopher kings, meaning with statesmen who themselves practice practice philosophy. And it seems to me pretty obvious that the track record is much better in the second case than in the first mm -hmm. case. I mean, think about the examples, right? So the first case that I look at in uh, in the chapter on on philosophers trying to teach politicians is Plato's attempts to uh, work with two of the leaders of Syracuse in Sicily, Dionysus I and Dionysus II. Well, poor Plato almost lost his life twice as a result. It just didn't go anywhere. He was, on the other hand, very successful with a third person who actually did become then, a, for, for a period, the the chief, you know, the head in, in Syracuse, and that was Dion. But the thing, but the but in the case of Dion, Dion was in fact one of Plato's students. He was the one that went to to Plato and wanted to learn. He was he actually had the right attitude. Dionysius the first and Dionysius the second did not. So that's one example. Um, then we get to Aristotle and Alexander. Arguably, that's not a complete failure because uh, Alexander learned quite a bit from Aristotle and tried to put into practice what Aristotle was teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, nevertheless, you know, I, I, Alexander didn't really learn much in the way of the, the virtue part from, from, uh, from Aristotle. He really learned more about uh, the, the concept of um, the Aristotelian concept of pan-Hellenism, the notion that you should unify Greece uh, as a nation instead of a bunch of little city-states. Right. And in fact, Alexander got the ball and, and start running with it because not only he wanted to unify Greece, he wanted to unify the world. Mm -hmm. um, so, right. But of course, unifying here means I'm conquering. Everybody. Yeah, he's the king. Exactly. Yeah. He's the king. He's, the, he's <laughs> yeah. the king and he has unified everything. The third case is uh, almost complete disaster and that's Seneca and Nero. Yeah. Right. Now, Seneca, contrary to what a lot of people seem to think, actually did succeed for the first five years uh, with Nero, uh, together with, in part because of the help of the Praetorian prefect, uh, Sextus Burrus, who mm -hmm. was, you know, a major, uh, the, the, the Praetorian prefect was essentially in charge of the personal guard of the emperor. And this guy was, you know, worked very well with Seneca and the two of them kind of worked things out okay for the first five years, but then Seneca, uh, but then Nero sort of just started going increasingly unhinged. And the end of it is, that uh, Nero forced Seneca to commit suicide, and then Nero was himself first to, forced to commit suicide. Though not not exactly good good stories. On the other hand, if you're looking at the chapter on on statesmen who themselves have a drive to uh, learn philosophy as a as a way of living, then things look much better. You you look at Cato the Younger, uh, mm -hmm. who I mentioned earlier, the arch enemy of Julius Caesar. 
And Cato was really did practice Stoicism also as a statesman, as a, as a Roman senator, as a governor of Cyprus. And in fact, it was so well respected by uh, the people in general, precisely because of that. I mean, the, the story goes that in Rome, if you did something wrong and, you know, you kind of slipped up, slip up a little bit, that your excuse would be, well, not everybody can be a Cato. <laughs> you know, Cato was such a high level, high, a high standard of morality. The second case, of course, is Marcus Aurelius, who really did try to mm-hmm. learn from his uh, Stoic tutor, Junius Rusticus, and uh, and implement what he learned throughout his life uh, in, in his personal relationships, as well as, as uh, the head of the Roman state. And then the third story, which is a little less known, is that of Julian the last pagan emperor, sometimes referred to as the apostate, because the mm-hmm. Christians don't like him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Julian, unfortunately, had a very short, fairly short uh, reign. He was killed in battle uh, not not long after he took control of the empire. But while bef- before getting, in, you know, to the point of becoming be- being the emperor and in the first in the, in the time, brief time that he actually was, he really did pretty much the right things. So he, he was trying to govern fairly. He was trying to implement, uh, you know, reforms against uh, corruption and things like that. So so these are pretty good examples. Now, of course, in modern societies, we don't want kings, presumably, or emperors. But we do want statesmen who know what they're doing, not just from a technical perspective, but from a perspective of ethics, from a point of view of, of, of their moral compass. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of those. Yeah. I can't think of too many examples. Do you think uh, maybe the president, let's say of the United States, would benefit from having philosophers counsel him, like kind of like Marcus Aurelius did? Well, well only, I think yes, so. I think he would, but only if he actually if he's actually willing willing to listen. I mean, you just yeah. mentioned a minute ago, you know, the the hope at one point initially that Trump was going to surround himself with good advisors, but he didn't right. <laughs> because he's yeah. not interested in in right. uh, people's advice. So that's that that's the problem, right? That uh, you have to have somebody who already has the propensity for uh, doing the right thing. And so he wants to surround himself by by good friends, right? Good mm-hmm. advisors, you know, people people of, uh, of virtue. And and we don't have a lot of those. And the reason I think we don't have a lot of those, at the end of the book, I pretty much, uh, you know, try to, to, to see, well, why is it that we have so few politicians and statesmen? And I think that in the end, you know, the buck stops with us, at least in democratic countries. You know, mm-hmm. we are the ones who put up these people uh it's not like you know if, if we're talking about a tyranny all right that's not that's not the people's fault um, but certainly in a democratic or even a partially democratic country we are responsible and the problem is that we the people have uh, gone into the point where we don't care much about character we don't think about ethics in in the sense that we've been discussing uh, and uh and this is a fairly new thing it you know like even the founders of the American Republic were very much the kind of uh, people that we're talking about. They were mm-hmm. all you know Jefferson, Washington, uh, Franklin, Adams. They were all very well versed in moral philosophy. They made a point of studying. In fact, each one of the the ones that I just mentioned had their copy, their personal copy of Epictetus's Enchiridion. Mm-hmm. And so now. Of course, you can always criticize specific actions, specific, you know, but but Tom, but Jefferson, Jefferson did this or Washington did that. Of course, they're mm-hmm. all human beings, so they're all fallible. But at least they were trying to do their best in a way that was consciously informed by the notion that they should be acting virtuously and ethically. I don't see a lot of politicians these days that that do the same thing, uh, and that's I think in in the end that's our fault. Right. We are and, not doing it, so we don't expect it from our leaders. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what you're saying is very in line with the clinical literature, which essentially says, number one, that something like narcissistic personality disorder is obviously many personality disorders are incredibly hard to treat if even possible. So we're talking about a decade, give or take about what, how long it takes to treat it. That's number one. And then the second thing is most people who do even enter, like, let's say any type of therapy, whether even psychoanalysis or CBT or whatever, and they are hardly narcissistic, they're looking for a yes, man. They're looking for a therapist essentially to agree with them. You know, an example that comes to mind, I had a kid's dad. Uh, and then his mom told me, she said, you know, well, his dad is in therapy, but his therapist is just like him. So she's like, he has narcissistic personality disorder. And his therapist is pretty narcissistic. So they kind of just shoot the shit and agree with each other all day long. And that's kind of what they look for. So yeah. it's like what you're saying essentially is that, you know, if we're taking the literature seriously, if we're taking human psychology, you know, human nature as diverse as it could be, if we're taking it seriously, what we're saying is that we have to make sure that we're not putting in the wrong people and then after the fact trying to correct for it. So like if you're looking at Donald Trump as an example, the idea is like, you can't just make those kind of mistakes and then hope, okay, you know, we're going to surround himself with good people, you know, we're going to protest, whatever. I mean, obviously, right. at that point, that's the only recourse you're going to have. But the idea is to get those people out, not even get them out of there, don't even get them in there in the first place. So it's like what you're saying is essentially is in, the, in a way it's hopeful and it's not right. So it's kind of a juxtaposition right. a little bit, right? So on the one hand, you're saying it's not hopeful in the sense of like, people are not going to dramatically change. But it's also hopeful in the sense of saying like, well, yes, if we band together as a society, we can cultivate a better police, right? Uh, you know, for for all, for all of us, right? That we could sort of get these people out of the way and say to ourselves, like, okay, these people need treatment. They don't need to be in power. Correct. And there's another thing that we could do. And again, we're not doing at the moment, but, you know, it really is up to us. And that is to teach the next generation. So we are, you know, the, 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 the evidence, Again, the the intuition from the Greco-Romans, as well as the modern scientific evidence, is that people's characters is pretty much done with. It's pretty much set by the late late teens, early twenties. Okay, uh, the Greco-Romans talked about uh, something that they refer to as the age of reason, the, the time where where you can actually you're actually susceptible to really learn and mo- and modify your character. Mm-hmm. And modern science tells you that. Uh, the human brain pretty much stops growing and it's completely formed by your early 20s. Okay? Right. That means that trying to teach somebody later on, unless they want to do it, to do it, unless they want, they, they, are, they have their own motivations. It's pretty much a lost cause. There's, there's not much you can do there. But there is a lot you can do before. Right. And so one of the questions is, why the hell are we not teaching moral philosophy as well as critical thinking, because I think the Stoics were right that ethics yeah. goes with logic, as well as science. They also insisted on that part, right? You need to understand how the world works. So these three things. Why are we not teaching moral philosophy and critical thinking to kids in elementary school, middle school, and, and high school? Right? I mean, there are exceptions, of course. There are there are a few schools that do these kind of things, but usually these are experimental programs. They're not. They're certainly not nationwide programs. And it's really puzzling because poll after poll, uh, every time that we have an election, shows that one of the top concerns of Americans is education. Right. And then we don't do anything about it. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, I have a suspicion, and the suspicion, uh, the suspicion is, so it's based on the observation that when people have, in, have tried to in, introduce philosophy and critical thinking in, at a pre-college level, mm-hmm. right, you usually get resistance from two quarters. One, politicians, yeah. and two, parents, a mm. lot of parents. Now, that got me thinking. It's like, wait a minute. What do these two categories of people have in common? Well, Control. with respect to the kids, they are authority figures, right? And the last thing that an authority figure wants is the kid to start thinking on their own. They right. start asking embarrassing questions and start behaving in a way that it's not the way, the proper way to behave and so on and so forth. So no wonder we have resistance. But again, it is up to us to teach the next generation. So the two things I think we need to do is, A, at election time, to put character forefront and say and decide, look, I would rather vote. You know, I'm a, it is no... Uh, no secret that I am a progressive liberal in terms of political spectrum, but mm. I much rather have a conservative with a good character, let's say a Winston Churchill, let's mm-hmm. say. In- oh, not Jordan Peterson? 
No, not Jordan Peterson. <laughs> 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 yeah. Definitely not Jordan Peterson. But a conservative with a good character. In other words, somebody who is trying to do this, the, the right thing and who's trying to work on doing the right thing. Then a, you know, uh, narcissistic leftist who right. will not do the right thing. <laughs> they will push their own agenda, but they will not do the right thing. The other thing is we, we don't seem to pay attention to the fact that, you know, when we elect somebody in office, often we do it on the basis of their platform, right? Their program. It's like, oh, what is this guy going to do about this, that, or the other? Mm -hmm. Without realizing that once elected, usually politicians cannot do much of what they said they were going to do. Why? Because they're not kings. They're not right. emperors. They have to work with you know hundreds of other senators or representatives or something mm -hmm. like that. So they have to compromise. Well, so the, the whole platform thing just gives me a general idea of what the priorities of this person are. But honestly, I cannot hold that person responsible once in office for going through the points that he said was going to go through because that's not the way politics works. But I do want, therefore, somebody with a good character because that person will try to get as much as possible done under the, whatever the circumstances on the ground actually are. One of the, my favorite quotes from, uh, from Cicero is actually about um, Cato the Younger and uh, uh, you know, Cato was, was uh, uh, as I said, a you know, role model for the Stoics, but he was also a little bit too rigid when it came to uh, you know, his actions in the Senate. And so at one point, Cicero, who was also a fellow senator, writes to his friend uh, Atticus and says, as for our friend Cato, you do not love him more than I do. But after all, with the very best intentions and the most absolute honesty, he sometimes does harm to the Republic. He speaks and votes as though he were in the Republic of Plato, not in the scum of Romulus. I <laughs> love that way of putting it. It's like, you know, dude, we don't live in utopia. We live right, in right. the scum of Romulus. Right. And, we, and you have to pay, pay, pay attention to that. That is what being wise means. Being mm. wise means that you, you can navigate complex situations that are not ideal. Every, any, any, everybody's good is good when the situation is ideal. If you have mm -hmm. everything at your disposal and you can do anything, sure, then that would be easy. But that's not the reality. Right. Yeah, and it made me think because uh, when we were talking about the connection between what the is and not gap, and you know, we're thinking sometimes sometimes a person or somebody who might be listening to the show would say, well, you don't necessarily have to be educated to be moral. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. But the interesting thing is if you look at people who are highly narcissistic, they're actually only in the only in the business of educating themselves to manipulate other people. So they don't necessarily care about science or the universe or, you know, in terms of just the way the world works outside of how, how can I manipulate people to make them work for me? So when you have somebody like Trump and there's a disconnection between morality and education, again, it could be somewhat of a loose one, but the idea is this person isn't interested in learning about science because he doesn't know how to make science work for him. Science doesn't serve his particular needs. So I think it's always very telling when somebody doesn't want to learn and when they when they want to impose their own conception of reality onto the world and onto other people. Absolutely. I, you know, so what you said is, is absolutely right, of course, that uh, one doesn't need education or to be moral. There's plenty of moral people who are not educated. However, I would argue you improve it with education, right? What, mm -hmm. From whatever your, your baseline is. I mean, that would be like saying, oh, I, I can play an instrument. I can play the saxophone. I don't need, you know, musical education. Yes, you do. Because even if you are a Mozart, you will improve right. with the right training and the right, you know, Mozart did go, did take lessons from his father, right? Mm -hmm. um, so everybody can get better. And besides, uh, even though it's true that everybody has a baseline, you know, we, which is probably the result, as we were saying in the beginning of this conversation, of natural selection embedding into us basic instincts about, about human cooperation. So in a sense, yes, everybody is moral unless they are a psychopath or a, or a sociopath, right? In, which is literally a brain that doesn't work very well. So, you know, it's a defective brain. That's why it's not it's not doing it. But we're also talking about a situation where natural selection built into us certain instincts, which were working very well back in the Pleistocene when we were living in bands of 60 or 80 people, most of whom were our relatives. 
Right. Now we live in metropolis like here in New York of 8 million people where most people are not my relatives, mm-hmm. where in fact, I don't get to know most people. And yet we somehow we need to find a way to live together and to thrive together. And so that's where I think the, the actual the training and the thinking comes into into play. Right. And it's so interesting that, I mean, obviously from the book, but just the story itself is that Socrates was so different from Alcibiades, where you had these two really distinct people and somehow or other, I mean, obviously, I don't know if you'd call them friends, but they somehow still maintained a relationship, you know, whatever way that they did. So how do you think that Socrates was able to kind of maintain that level of patience with her? Because the other guy was a complete asshole. Yeah, he was a little bit of an asshole. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. So uh, Socrates says at some point in uh, in Plato's Symposium that he's in love with Alcibiades, but it doesn't mean he, uh, love, physical love, physical attraction. Alcibiades really did feel physical attraction for right. Socrates, but not the other way around. What Socrates saw in Alcibiades was the potential of of a of a good soul or a, of somebody who actually could, in fact, uh, learn to live life virtuously, but. The second chapter of the book is about a major dialogue, uh, something called the Alcibiades Major, which is a dialogue attributed to Plato, although it's, we don't know for sure that Plato wrote it. But nevertheless, it's a conversation between Socrates and Alcibiades. And Alcibiades is young, he's in his 20s, early 20s. And he goes to, to Socrates and says, look, I, I want to make an impact in, the, in society. I want to become a leader in Athens. You know, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Right. And notice, as a background piece of information, Alcibiades was an incredible person, impossibly handsome, mm-hmm. super rich, very smart, incredibly brave. I mean, the guy was like everything, right? Uh, except for the part that was the most important for the statesman, according to Socrates. So they start out, you know, I'm a conversation. And basically, this is a job interview that Socrates is doing. And he said, okay, so if you become, you know, a leader in Athens, well, how, what are going to be your priorities? What are you going to, what are you going to do? How are you going to act? And it is increasingly, increasingly clear that Alcibiades just doesn't have what it, what it takes. And so at some point, uh, Socrates actually stops the conversation and uh, says something very, very uh, straightforward to Alcibiades, he says, and I'm, I'm quoting here, then alas, Alcibiades, what a condition you suffer from. I hesitate to name it, but since we two are alone, it must be said, you are wedded to stupidity, best of men, of the most extreme sort, as the argument accuses you and you accuse yourself. So this is why you are leaping into the affairs of the city before you have been educated. Now, that's pretty harsh. Mm-hmm. The, the word that Socrates is using there when he says, you know, a particular type of stupidity is actually amatia. And amatia in Greek means unwisdom. Mm-hmm. So Alcibiades has everything except wisdom. Mm-hmm. And that's the only thing that he really needs. You, right. you don't need to be rich to be a, a, a successful statement. You don't need to be handsome. Uh, you don't even need to be brave necessarily. Cicero was a great statement and he wasn't particularly physically brave. But you do need to be wise. And that was the, the the very thing, you know, virtue was the very thing that was missing, unfortunately, from Alcibiades. Honestly, guys, I don't know why uh, somebody hasn't made a movie out of Alcibiades' life because <laughs> it was incredible. I mean, this guy arguably was, you know, 50% responsible for the defeat of uh, Athens in the Peloponnesian War against against Sparta. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. he single-handedly caused so much trouble. Right. Uh, he, he defected from Athens to Sparta. And then he was in Sparta. And what does he do? He's a guest, right, of the two kings, because Sparta had two kings. He seduces the wife of one of the kings and has a baby with, with her. So the king clearly is not happy. So now the Spartans are, are going after him. And so he moves to uh, Persia, the arch enemy of the Greeks, and he, he goes to Persia. And what does he do in Persia? The same damn thing. Then he defects again to the Athenians. I mean, it's, the guy was just incredible. Eventually, of course, <laughs> you know, uh, luck got up with him. And uh, a, a Spartan general named Lysander was so sick and tired of, of Alcibiades. And, and so still... Despite all these reversals of fortune, he actually saw Alcibiades as the major threat to a Spartan victory. Mm-hmm. And so finally, he convinces the, the Persians to go after Alcibiades and kill him. And uh, the story goes that 
uh, it was surrounded. His house was surrounded uh, in in the in the mountains, and he came out with his shield and his and his sword, yelling his battle cry. And mm -hmm. people were were so afraid that they not there, did not dare to actually engage in con in combat with him. They mm -hmm. just started shooting arrows at him to kill him at a distance <laughs> because it was too dangerous the guy was just too dangerous yeah wow man. can you not see a movie out of this thing i mean come on yeah get the guy who plays thor to play him. oh that's hilarious yeah. there you go uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah and like all and it's ultimately i'm telling you man socrates is like the ultimate therapist because that really does sound like a relationship between a really difficult patient and a therapist yep. where Absolutely. most other where most other people would have given up on that person and the therapist is like no i see a little bit a sliver of good in that person i have to keep at it that's exactly right that's exactly yeah. right i mean socrates tried for 20 years yeah, which is so the dedication, man. That is that is legitimately <laughs> the epitome of philosophy. It does not get better than that. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, Massimo. So before we wrap up, Alan, any final questions? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and and, and buy the book as well, uh, where could we do that? The book can be found anywhere you find books. But to follow my work, uh, MassimoPilucci.org. You'll find <laughs> everything that I write, my podcast. Everything is in there. All right. Awesome. So uh, two things. So the first thing is I loved your book. I thought it was one of the best books of 2022. Mm, and you. then you're very welcome. And then the second thing is, so we had Jack Symes on the podcast and I think it was about February. And I actually thought your chapter in Philosophers Unconsciousness was by far the best one. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that was a lot of fun, actually. That was a lot of fun to, to write. <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you so much for coming on. This was so great. It was great, guys. Thanks for having me. Have a, have a good night, man. Talk to you soon. Thank here. you. All right. That was awesome. And everyone, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, on Twitter, where at Seize underscore podcast. Uh, like, subscribe, hit the bell on YouTube. Hit the bell. And thank you so much again for watching and see you next time.